Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 7th, 2014. This is episode 1342 of the Survival Podcast. We're going to continue our series on fishing today. Don't worry, the whole week won't be fishing. I'm going to do two shows this week, and uh, tomorrow we'll do something different, and we'll continue the series maybe next week with one more episode. And on Friday we'll have our listener call show. If you've never been part of a listener call show, you can call in a question or a comment for Friday's show. I can't guarantee it'll be on the air. We get way too many to put them all on. The number to do that, though, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. If you do that, please call from a quiet location. Make sure you have bars on your cell phone for reception because there won't be anybody to tell you that they can't hear you well on the other end. Anyway, uh, before we uh, get into today's show on fishing, which is going to be today on rivers and streams, kind of extending on the equipment show we did yesterday, well, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Well, you're going to get Berkey water filtration systems. Yep, the Berkey guy sells Berkeys. That's shocking, I know. But the reality is you can get a Berkey from a lot of different people. But Jeff is one of the top distributors of Berkey in the world. In the world. And that means he gets great pricing. He is also a maniac with customer service. You might find somebody that sell you, you know, the system for five bucks less, but you will not find someone that will take care of you the way Jeff will. And again, remember guys, if you like this show, support our sponsors. Jeff's been a sponsor of this show for over four years. Four year, almost five. I think it's about time to get Jeff a plaque. I gotta look that up. I got a plaque for Safe Castle for five years. I think I owe a lot of people plaques right now. Let's just the, uh, the staying power and longevity of our sponsors is, is unbelievable. We've had sponsors for longer than most podcasts, I think, have been on the air. Next up today is Fortress Defense Consultants. Yesterday I told you to get ammo for your gun. I said there were three things you need to make your gun effective. There was ammo, the gun itself, because if you have a piece of crap gun, it doesn't run well. If you don't have ammo, your gun's a club. But the third thing, the linchpin that makes it all work together, is you, the operator. And I think people have a real habit of believing that they'll just do what they need to do if a bad situation happens. and They need to defend themselves or others with their weapon. The reality is you cannot have enough training, and you certainly cannot have too much. But you can have inadequate training, you can have insufficient training, and you can have sub-quality training. So when you get your training and you take the time and spend the money to go, you want top-notch instruction. You will not find better than Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at Fortress Defense Consultants because they are not just lifelong teachers, they're lifelong students. All of them take multiple courses every year from other trainers to continue to update and improve their training capabilities. If you want to find a great teacher, find a great student. That's what you'll find at Fortress Defense Consultants at FortressDefense.com. Uh, next up, our MSB discount vendor of the day. This is somebody that's not an official sponsor but does offer a discount to members of our support brigade. Mother Earth Products, dehydrated vegetables, fruits, freeze-dried stuff. It's all awesome. 12.5% discount for members. What the heck is a member? A member is a person who supports our show financially as part of our Members Support Brigade. You can join. You just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. comes out to about 50 bucks a year. That's 18.3 cents per episode if you do the math. 
and I will get you your money back. If you're buying the stuff that we talk about, everything from guns to gardens and everything in between food storage, if you're buying stuff for your for your seeds and plants, I don't care what it is. If you're buying stuff for self-sufficiency, I've got discounts for you. And I've got real discounts. I don't mean crappy discounts like AAA, where you, you go to the hotel and you go, what's your best rate? And they say, well, it's here. And you go, well, uh, what about my AAA discount? And they go, well, I already gave you a better price than that. I don't mean that. I mean actual discounts that you can't get anywhere else from great supporters, great content that's available nowhere else, um, and supporting the show. So consider becoming a member support brigade member today. It is how we primarily pay the bills around here. Uh, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you guys qualify for a discount. If you email me before, not after you join, before, put service discount in the subject line. One or two sentences tell me about your service. Either prior service or active duty is fine, not just retired, prior service. If you were a volunteer sheriff for a year, as long as you're not lying to me about that, I'll give you the discount, just to make it clear. All right. With that, let's get into uh, the main part of the show today. Before we get into fishing, let's talk about the year that was the episode, the history segment. The year is 1342, a long, long time ago. Fiery Joan, the Countess of Flanders, rises to slaughter her enemies. Yeah, I'm serious. The Countess of Flanders has donned her armor and has taken up the defense of Herbenant. She is the wife of John de Montfort, one of the two main antagonists in the War of the Breton Succession. She sees the enemy encampment outside her, herb, her hen bont and leads the charge right into the enemy camp. She sets fire to their supplies, which may explain the monk ear, Fiery Joan. But that's not the only reason. This isn't a war on woman. This is a war fought by women. She encourages women to cut their skirts, and not wait for their men to defend them. When Joan's husband dies, she will continue the cause fighting for her son's right to succession. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us at tspwiki.com. What a gal. She will end up fighting in hand-to-hand combat with the Spanish, trying to board her ship as it crosses the English Channel. She is called the Lioness in battle, but she won't be alone. Next year, the Lioness of Brittany, Jean Jean. De Belleville leaps into the scene. She will be one angry woman. My take. Women, this is your example. Do not be second tier to men. Women and men have differences. The average man is physically stronger than the woman. I'm just saying. It's true. That's why we have different divisions in sports. That does not mean that women are weak. And I'll tell you what. Learning to fight for women may be more important than it is for men. There are people that would do you harm, and many women don't believe that to be the case. I'm saying this metaphorically. Cut your freaking skirt and learn to defend yourself, gals. I, you can say all the mama bear crap you want. If somebody touches my children, I... But do you know how? Learn martial arts. And, hey, get over to Frank Sharp Jr. He can teach you martial arts. Martial arts? I thought he was a gun instructor. Hey, martial arts includes weapons. You ever see old kung fu movies with a guy with a pair of nunchucks? Well, today you can learn a martial art called Nine Miljitsu. It is a martial art. Learning how to move, learning how to respond, learning how to act, learning how to defend yourself physically with your body and the weapon at the same time. It's the kind of training our sponsor will give you. Gals, seriously. This is a true story, just a side right here. 
One day I was at an expo and a couple came up to me and the guy was talking to me and then he kind of wandered off and the lady was talking to me and he was go she goes, he keeps telling me to get my concealed carry permit and to learn how to use a gun. And I figure he's got a gun and he's very, very good with it and he's got my back. So why would I do that? And I said to her, ma'am, if something goes wrong while your husband has your back, who has his? Be like Fiery Joan, the Countess of Flanders, gals. Learn how to defend yourself and your family. And even that bigger, stronger lunk of a husband, I'm telling you, you can never cover all sides of the clock at the same time. You always need someone covering your six. Be there to cover each other's six. Didn't know I was going to say all that today, but it just kind of moved me. Thank you to Alex Shrugged, who puts these together at TSPWiki.com, the survival wiki. Anyway, um, next up today, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Um, I decided to do this series on fishing because I just spent a couple weeks fishing in Sanibel Island, Florida on the surf. So you would think my first show after I did all the equipment and gear like I did yesterday would be surf fishing. No, because I wanted to start with what I really love. What put the totality of fishing's control on my being in life uh, first. And in some ways, it really would be ponds and lakes, because as a kid in Florida, I fished a lot of things, but the, probably the thing that I fished the most were small ponds and canals, because they were the most accessible to me. But it was the moving water that kind of got into my soul, and kind of took me to a point where I understood the water and I understood the fish. It can be that deep, trust me. Um, I grew up, again, split between two places in my childhood. We, I grew up in the younger part of my childhood in a place called Jacksonville, Florida. I spent a lot of time at the beach, and I would fish there whenever I got to go. But, you know, it was like 20 miles from my house. So when you're 10, you're not exactly going to go 20 miles unless you have an adult driving you. So it wasn't frequent. I fished the St. John's River quite a bit. Um, there was some local areas I could get to on a bike and what have you. My grandfather used to take me. Uh, to the pier at Jacksonville University where he was chief of security, and we would fish there, which was nice because you had to be a student or a member of faculty to fish there, and um, most people didn't take advantage of that, so we usually had the, the boat dock and pier to ourselves. But that's not the kind of river that I'm talking about today. The St. John's was well over a mile wide where I used to fish it. It had tides that if you were swimming in it could drown you. And it was brackish water. It was more like fishing a bay or the surf or estuaries or things like that. Um, but I did enjoy it to a degree, and I actually enjoyed it a lot, but it wasn't something that I really could get into some of the things I'm talking to you guys today about because it was just too big and too powerful and too tidal of a river. During that time, I found little streams that ran through the swamps, and we did a lot of fishing. We'd catch sunfish and catfish and stuff like that. Kids don't care, whatever it is. I actually had kind of a cool place we used to fish. It was a stream that ran through. Nobody thought there were any fish, and we used to catch catfish like crazy out of it. Bullhead catfish, the black bullhead catfish that people think are mudcats. They're in clean water. They're pretty good, but you know they only get 14, 16 inches. It's a really big one. Uh, we'd catch most of them in the 10, 12, 13-inch range, and they were pretty good eating. We had this little technique, I'll tell you about another one of these things I didn't plan on putting in today's show. But we had this waterfall that came over into a deep pool, and there were little rocks under the water. This was really clear water you could see good in. And there were holes down in the rocks. And we would take a bait, usually a cut piece of sunfish, and drop it into the hole. 
and there was we'd have a weight on the line, and we'd put the weight on one of the rocks so you could see the weight. And when the weight went off the rock, you jerked the line up, and there was usually a catfish on it down in those holes. The other smaller fish wouldn't go in there with the bigger cats in there. So that was kind of cool, but it was when I moved to Pennsylvania. It's when I moved back to Pennsylvania, more accurately. I was just going into my teens, and I was getting to that point where I was self-sufficient. I could get out and fish on my own and what have you. And I discovered trout fishing in streams and smallmouth bass fishing in mid-sized to larger rivers. And that's when it happened. That's when I realized that that was the type of fishing that if I could do anything, I would do it all the time. There's just something magical about streams and rivers. They're like highways. And when you're on one that you can either easily walk the bank of or wade in, you can get away from people. And you can, you can kind of move into the belly of a forest. And, 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 you know, this is long before I knew about permaculture, but I guess maybe it's part of why I love permaculture so much, because that forest always has been my teacher, the sounds of the forest. And I found that, you know, most of the, the, the dedicated fishermen weren't that dedicated. They were people that fished the big river in the summer and they fished the streams in the spring when the state was stalking trout and they were easy. And once the, stock, the stalking trucks and the float stalkers stopped coming out, They went away because they thought the creeks were fished out. Well, it was just all the dumb fish were gone. And then I started realizing that not only that was the case, but there were streams with native trout that were much more difficult to get to. You couldn't just drive up and walk. You had to you know, use a motorcycle or a bicycle or something like that or hike and backpack. And if you got into these streams, you could be out for a day and never see another human being. And there was something special about that and that's what hooked me on streams and rivers little thing right here at the front people call these things different river generally is a big body of water it's pretty big and it says river on the map sometimes i see things that say river on the map and i look at that and go that's not a river that's a creek but once you come down from river stream brook creek crick what's the right term i don't care so if if i use these words interchangeably today And you tell me, I'm going to email you back and say, I don't care, or I'm going to ignore your email. Because to me, it's all the same. But yet, <laughs> you know, a, a stream is is probably deeper than a crick, right? We used to have a place we used to call Shit Crick. Uh, it was a pretty nasty body of water. By the way, um, it was due to industry. And with the Clean Water Act in the 80s, the industry didn't immediately stop dumping into this place. But they had to stop dumping. And they slowly, you know, during their grace period, weaned off of all the things they were doing. They didn't actually fix the shit creek at all. They just stopped dumping into it. In 2001, when we moved to Pennsylvania for three years, my wife, I, and my son take a job up there. I went and took her back to some of the places I went as a kid. And in the formerly known as shit creek, the Renative Brook Trout. So our streams can clean up remarkably fast, far faster than lakes if we just stop damaging them. Maybe that's another reason I like them. Uh, choosing your gear for moving water. I did a whole show on gear yesterday, but when I did, and if you haven't listened to that yet and you're not real switched on with fishing gear, you might want to listen to that before you go further in today's show. But when I did that, I, I kind of demonstrated that I have a personal affinity for spinning rods over bait casting and closed face reels. Um, and I didn't get deep into fly rods. And I can fly fish, but I'm not a dedicated fly fisherman, so I'm going to leave fly fishing out of the whole series. Uh, and I know some of you guys that love fly fishing are like, oh, no, I'm sorry. It's just not my thing. Maybe one day we'll do a show on it. But to me, it's its own separate thing. 
But I talked about all the different reels and rods and options, and I, you know, it was pretty clear that I personally like spinning gear. And I'll tell you, I think for most river fishing, especially river fishing where you're wading or in small boats, spinning gear is the best, and it's probably why I like it so much. Now, you get in big, slow rivers, and you're after great big catfish in a deep pool, and you're dropping lines out 20, 30 feet only. Bait casting gear works really well, especially fighting big cats in rocky areas. I get that. But for reading the water, looking at things, making evaluations, casting precision, all of those types of things, I would highly recommend you consider spinning gear. A good assortment of weights uh, that we talked about yesterday, a good assortment of hooks. Um, in, in my stream fishing my and river fishing, my favorite hook pattern is my pretty much my favorite hook pattern for most things. The bait holder style hook made by Eagle Claw, where you have a J hook style, but the eye is bent forward, which causes the hook to rotate, and you have two small barbs on the hook shank that help hold bait on. Like yesterday, I'm going to talk about fishing today, mostly, not completely, but mostly from a bait fisherman standpoint, especially in rivers, I've done better, but I have some exceptions to that I'll talk about today as well. I think it makes a lot of sense to get a floating minnow bucket uh, if you're going to be using minnows or something like that so that you can have it on your waist. There are different types of belt containers for, for bait. One of the baits that we used a lot when I used to fish the Susquehanna were Helgramites, and we just had like a worm box. They're called a worm box, and they just go to your belt, and they don't sit down in the water unless you go over your belt level waiting. And you can keep worms in there. Well, a big clump of seaweed in there or something wet, grass or whatever, and Helgramites work really well. Helgramites look a lot like, if you saw Wrath of Khan, the Star Trek movie, the thing they put in the guy's ear, Helgramites look a lot like that. They're a Dobson fly larva, and they're dynamite on smallmouths. But some type of way to carry your bait and keep your bait fresh. Uh, when you're lake fishing, you're boat fishing, whatever, and you can boat fish in rivers, we'll talk about that a little bit today. You know, you have a big old cooler and a tackle box and everything. When you get in the water, though, and you're moving up and downstream, even if you have, like, a base of operations with all your big gear, you need to be very, very self-sufficient out there, so to speak. So knife pliers, things like that, that all can be carried on you, but extra hooks, extra bait, so that every time, you know, you lose a bait or snag a line, you're not having to go all the way back. When I fished the small streams up in the mountains, I would usually take a very small day pack, backpack style thing with all my gear in it. But I wanted to keep that as light as possible. Um, from you, know, you never want that pack to be too big, too bulky, too heavy. It, it, when you're fishing some of these areas that I'm talking about, getting way out, um, you end up going through a lot of blowdowns and tangles and things like that. Um, so enough to carry your gear. So that's all I'm going to really say on gear because we'll, we'll cover some more on gear as we talk about some of the species. Now, kind of, I want to get in on this show a little bit into part of what I love most about moving water is the fact that you can read the water. Um, reading water is something you hear a lot of the fly fishermen, specialized, especially in trout fishing, talk about. A lot of times people read water also in bays and estuaries and backwaters and things like that in the surf. Um, but with a river or a stream, it's in some ways a lot easier than just about anywhere else where you can read water. If you think about a lake, when you look at a lake, it looks the same, unless something's protruding out of the water. So you're looking at a lake, there's no stumps or anything sticking up, it, the water's just flat. Now, 
if you drained the lake and stood on the bottom of the lake, you'd see slants and slopes and, and piles of debris and, and humps and all types of things like that. And there's a lot of structure beneath the surface of that lake. But unless the water is very clear and you're, you're close enough to see down there, um, or you have a depth finder that, that shows you that, or the particular structure is, is protruding up above the surface, you really don't know what's down there. And even when it's protruding above the surface, well, what's down there? Is it just one stump, or is it a piece that's sticking up and there's a whole pile of stuff down there? Is it one little rock, or is there a whole bunch of rocks, and that's just a piece you can see? Because the water's not moving, there's no fingerprints. When you look at moving water, you can see certain things right away. So one of the first things that you want to be able to do is pick out where deep water is. And deep water is actually really easy to pick out, but the more you kind of tune your mind toward it, the better uh, you'll be able to do uh, in, in dealing with deep water, or I should say locating deep water. Now, the number one way that you notice deep water is the water moves slowly in most instances. It's not always the case. Uh, I'm going to talk about fast-moving deep water in a minute, but when you look at water and it's it's kind of rippling and, and things like that, moving around and all, and it goes into an area and it just kind of slows down and then it speeds up going back out, most of the time that water is deeper in that area, and, and it's that simple. Um, as you look across a stream a lot of times, you know, we tend to think, if, you, if I should draw a profile of a river or a stream, we tend, you know, as though you've done a sectional cutout and look downstream of what the bottom looks like, people have a tendency to draw them like ponds. You know, they kind of slope down and they get deeper in the middle and they slope back up. A lot of times the streams meander and bend and rivers do the same thing back and forth. They don't work that way. They slope down and they get deeper and deeper and deeper and the other bank is a steep ledge. Those steep ledges are where deep water is and a lot of times official hold. Um, so, and then just deep pools where you have water moving into a deep pool and then coming out of another pool, but learning to find the deeper water. Now, what is deep? Like what is deep? Well, in some places, two feet's really deep and some places, 12 feet's deep, deep. When I say deep and moving water, and this is part of what I love about it, it's relative, right? So if the average depth of a stream is six to eight inches and some of them are a pool of 14 inches is deep water for that stream. Now, that stream might have some six-foot holes, and that's even better. But fish will congregate in that deeper water. And they'll especially congregate in deeper water when you have low water uh, times of the year, where the shallow gets really shallow. So what's shallow? You know, again, it's relative. So one stream's you know average depth through most running areas might be a foot deep. Well, that water goes down to eight inches. That's a third of the depth is gone. So those fish are going to move toward deeper water. And a lot of times in summer, you'll find two places in the deeper water that fish like to get into. Right where the fast water stops and goes into the deep water, because that water's got a lot of oxygen in it, because it's been moving across rocks and things like that. And down at the tail end of the pool, right where the water's about to go back, because as stuff comes out of the stream and sediments in and all the different little things that the fish want to eat, a lot of times that deep pool still moves quite a bit, moves quite a bit. As it gets toward the back, it settles out. And there's all types of things back there for fish to consume. So not only do these fish congregate in these deeper pieces of water, they tend to sit there and look and set up feeding patterns. So it's part of why they make a lot of sense. 
Another pattern to be able to read is what's called an eddy. Eddies are some of the best places to fish in moving water. An eddy is simply where you have the waters going downstream and there's some sort of obstruction above, below, the side bank, whatever, where the water kind of swirls back like a whirlpool, but it's gentle. It's not like a super giant hydraulic whirlpool that sucks down people or anything. It's just a, a gentle backflow. And those gentle backflows are just great fish um, hiding hotspots. Then there's fast-moving deep water. Now, fast-moving deep water almost always has to go this way. You have a stream that's wide. Again, wide is relative. Maybe some streams are 9 feet wide. Some are 90 feet wide. Okay, So it's all about wide for the, the, the body of water. And as it comes into a down, you know, downgrade moment where it's, the water is picking up speed, the, the width contracts. So maybe you have a stream that's normally 25 feet wide on average, and it contracts down to about 12 feet. If you have a drop and a constriction, generally you get deep water through there, deep water flow. And that water can be quite fast. Sometimes it's so fast it doesn't hold a lot of fish. Sometimes it holds a great deal of fish. There was a stream, I cannot remember the name of it now. It was near Clark's Valley, but it wasn't Clark's Creek, Pennsylvania. Was on the other side of there. It's a stream that eventually runs to the Susquehanna River that we found. I think it was Paul's Valley, maybe it was the valley. Anyway, doesn't matter because most of you won't know that anyway. But there was a stream that we found, my uncle and I, years and years ago, that was holding a lot of stock trout into the summer. Apparently, people just didn't fish it as heavily as some of the other surrounding streams. And a fish and gun club had stocked the stream as well and apparently just did it in like. Got really excited about putting fish in there, but didn't really fish it a lot. And the fish, the stream had a lot of holdover fish, fish that were stocked two, three seasons ago. A lot of nice brown and rainbows in this stream. And we started fishing it a lot and doing very well. And one day, we're out fishing it, and I find exactly what I just described. This, this, this stream was normally about 25 feet wide. It pinched down to, it was probably only 10 foot across, And it was like a gorge, and the water flowed through there. And it was fast, but it wasn't super fast. And I'm like, as hot as it is, there's trout in here. So I go upstream, and I drift a line through. And I go upstream, and I drift a line through. And I drift a line through it about ten times, no bites. So then I kind of just put a little bit heavier weight on, and I reel, and I just kind of sit in the middle of it and just hold the rod and wait for a fish, and nothing hits. And I... Getting frustrated because I know there's fish in this spot. This is part of reading water. You just, you just know this spot is holding fish. Sometimes you can't. Why do you think that? Well, it's deep and all. But why else are you sure? I don't know, but I know there's fish here. So my uncle, quite a bit wiser and been around the block a little bit more than me, especially at this time, walks up and says, well, it's a problem. And I'm like, I know there's fish in here. He says, well, of course there's fish in there. He's, I'm like, well, I've been here 25 minutes without a nibble. He goes, get out of the way. He goes downstream. He puts on a pretty good-sized split shot, probably quarter ounce, nightcrawler, which is what I'm using for bait, and he casts upstream past the, the, the fast water, up into the slow water, and he starts reeling his line in really, really slowly, and what he's doing, he's letting the water carry the bait, and if the, if the bait had settled and caught bottom, he would have reduced the size of his weight, and if it would have came through fast, he would have increased it. He got it right on the first try. 
So when he's reeling it, he's not retrieving it. He's just keeping the line taut. He's keeping up with the natural flow of the bait. First time through, bam, brown trout. Throws in his creel, pitches upstream again, reels through, bam, brown trout. He's got two nice ones, like 14 inches. He goes, okay, you got it figured out? I'm like, yeah. Got down there, and I limited out in about 10 minutes from that one spot. Had a limit of eight trout, and they were all like 14, 15-inch trout, which are big trout for that part of the country. Um, and that was just from changing one small tactic But it started with reading that water and knowing high oxygen, fast but not too fast. There's got to be fish in there. The fish, when they sit in water, most of the time, if the water's moving, especially with any, any degree of speed, a fish is going to generally sit looking upstream. Because he can sit there and let the water run across his gills. He doesn't have to do a lot of effort right, to get good oxygen to his gills. And if, if you were a fish and you were hungry... What direction would you look? Upstream. So I was making a couple mistakes. One, by going upstream and drifting the water, the, the line through the water, I wasn't able to maintain a feel of the bait. So I didn't know how deep or shallow the bait was running. And because I was upstream from it, and the way I was holding it, I was the, the, the bait wasn't going through naturally. It was either riding too high or too low. But the other thing was that water was really clear, and even with its movement... If I'm standing there, and you're a fish, and I'm letting that line drift down to you, and you're looking upstream, you see me. So there's this big, weird, funky silhouette up there that the fish aren't digging, so that turns them off as well. When I stood there and held the line and let it go taunt, like I was, like I was tight line fishing, of course that bait is going to, with the current, rise up. And if I put enough weight on it, it's going to go all the way down. So by just changing that one tactic, it went from being a place you couldn't catch a fish to a honey hole. Um, and that was using fast-moving deep water. Ledges. I kind of talked about this when I said that sometimes a stream will slope, so it's really like you can walk two, three feet out in it, and you're in like five inches of water or less on one side, but the other side might be four or five feet deep or more. And that's usually when the, when the stream forms a bend, and at the, the, the inward side of the bend is where that happens, the deeper water to one side versus the other. Well, sometimes that gets kind of um, accentuated, especially with softer banks, muddy banks, and things like that, where the water will actually carve underneath that, so you'll have not only deep water, but a ledge going back in, where if you were to go in there, you could it's almost like a little mini cave. And that's a great spot for all kinds of fish, but especially catfish, especially big catfish like flatheads, like to get up underneath those ledges. Um, and it's important to understand that, because a lot of times you'll be fishing from a place where you can't really get to the other bank. It's too deep, it's too tangled, it's too much of a mess, so you're waiting in the stream. So now you're casting across to that ledge in that deep water. And if you just cast at it, you probably can't get into the, the cutout, if you, if you follow me. You can get right up against the bank and right there at the, the mouth of the cutout, but if you want to get back in there, By reading the water and seeing the way the water flows in, adjusting your weight the right way, the type of bait, the type of line, the type of hook, so that the bait will drift. If you cast above it, you can drift the line into the cutout. And a lot of times you'll, you'll, you'll constantly make beautiful casts. They go straight at the mouth of that cutout. That bait settles out, kind of drifts along it, and then goes back into the main pool, and you get no bites, no action. 
But if you come up above it and drift into that cutout, sometimes you know you you're, you know you're only in there six inches, and you'll get hammered with bites. And every time you get up into it, you get a bite, and then it, it's weird. But fish have certain finickiness, and sometimes the difference in six inches in your presentation is not just the result between catching a fish, but catching a lot of fish, where you can keep going back into that spot and keep pulling fish out of it over and over again. But a lot of times, once you figured that out, you cast, and your cast is you know a foot away from where you want it to be. It's almost at at some point once you've done enough discovery and you know where you're getting hits and where you're not, not worth fishing that cast. Reel it in and recast, and get the the, the bait where the fish are actually taking it. Um, there's a lot more. There there's there's weirs, and there's you know natural dams, and the the point is, whenever you look at water. Look for places where the natural pattern changes. Slow water becomes fast. Fast water becomes slow. The width goes wider or more shallow. The bank bends. The, the ripples change. So a lot of times you look at water, it looks pretty boring. It's rippling, you know, medium speed current. And it's a couple feet deep and it just all looks the same. It's not all the same. You know, all the ripples are going down. There's one place where the ripple kind of flips back. There's a big boulder there. And then right behind that boulder is a great place for a fish to be. But then you got to figure out, how does the water move? How do I get the line behind that boulder? If it's a huge boulder, you just drop it in there. But if it's just, like I'm talking about, like this subtle nuance, you just look at it and go, huh, there's a pocket there. There's a pocket of slower, deeper water because there's a, I don't even see the rock. I just see the way the water's acting, and I know that's there. If I cast straight to it, not only might I drop the bait on top of the fish's head, and if it's too big of a bait or what have you, disturb the fish and freak him out instead of catch him, but it's probably going to be the case that that bait's going to float right over that fish's head. Unless he's really aggressive, he's not going to pick it up. So I got to look at that water and figure out how can I get upstream and drift into that pocket. That this is this is why I find so much fun in fishing moving water versus you know fishing just a lake. Or just fishing open surf or what have you. Or a big river where you're just casting out and deadlining or tightlining or drifting or whatever. Being able to see these little things and, and hit these pockets. And be able to be out with somebody you're working with and teaching to fish. And they fish a spot just like my uncle did to me. And they become convinced there's no fish there. And being able to, to go into that spot. And to look at a little nuance and just do a little flip cast right in front of them and be able to pull that fish out of there where they get frustrated and you say, don't be frustrated, let's let's work together and figure out why that worked and why what you're, you're doing didn't. Those types of little subtleties are what makes this moving water fishing so much fun. So I want to move on and talk about specific techniques for five different, very, very different fish that, that I tep- typically fish for uh, in rivers and streams. I want to start out with trout. I've kind of covered some of this already. A lot of the things I just told you about reading water, these are trout finding techniques. Trout like highly oxygenated water. They like water that's generally a little deeper than the average depth of the stream. So if the average depth of foot, they like 18 inches. If the average depth is 18 inches, they like two feet. Don't ask me to explain the mind of a trout. That's just what I've observed in years and years of fishing for them. I'm not saying it's always the case, but I'm telling you when you find water that's a little deeper than average, generally it's holding fish for you. Trout are very, very particular about spending most of their time looking upstream. 
if they're cruising somewhere, they'll turn downstream and swim. But I'm saying when they're stationary, when they're, when they're hanging out, most fish turn upstream. Trout constantly want to be looking upstream. It's just a natural feeling for them. They like it. This means when you're waiting for trout, which is my primary way that I fish for trout, I either use waders, I'll use hip waders or chest waders, and I don't like to fish with chest waders. Uh, if I need to get that deep in water, I generally don't wade that deep in water. I figure another way around it. Um, but there's times I've wished I've had them because you're in a cold stream, and you make the mistake of going just a little bit further, and the water goes over the top of the boot. That does not feel good. But uh, in the cold weather, I'll, I'll use waders. My favorite way to fish wading in streams and rivers for anything is an old pair of shorts and an old pair of tennis shoes. Uh, that's my favorite. And getting a pair of wading shoes with felt bottoms and a slippery creek where you've got a lot of slime and stuff is a really good idea, whether they're felt bottom waders or just felt bottom wading shoes. Um, please use caution wading. Uh, a lot of these rocks are slick, and you can really hurt yourself. It's, it's something that you really have to take time and learn to do. And some streams just shouldn't be waded in. Soft, mucky, muddy bottom streams, try to fish from shore if you can. Uh, streams that are too deep, streams that are dangerous because of currents, Try to fish from shore if you can, uh, or get a boat. But where you can wade, and even if you're using your bank fishing, if you're fishing for trout and you're going downstream, you're probably wrong unless you're in a boat because that's the direction the boat's going to want to go. And the reason you're wrong is because most of these bodies of water are pretty clear and fish can see out of them, and you're coming at them versus sneaking up behind them. You also then have a propendency to be casting at the fish instead of past the fish and fishing the bait back the way I described the deep water hole. And that, that technique is not just for deep water holes. That's pretty much for everywhere. Now, you will find deep holes. And you can drop a line into a deep hole and there's no problem there. And sometimes you just drop a line in you start hammering fish, even with trout. But when you're in the moving shallower water, especially in clear trout streams, Instead of the sloths where they kind of murk up a little bit, you want to be moving upstream. And I'd say that's the good idea anyway. You find a deep hole on your way upstream. So my biggest thing with trout is working my way upstream. I really, and I mean really, really like to fish with bait for trout. And my favorite bait is night crawlers. And I will go away from night crawlers when they're not hitting them or other things are going on. I have found grasshoppers in the summer to be extremely effective bait for trout. Uh, mealworms are good bait for trout. Minnows are good bait for trout. Rainbows tend to like salmon eggs, especially if you can get good ones. Um, prepared baits like uh, the, the Berkey Power Bait, garlic scented, stuff like that works good on trout. Corn, especially for, for stocked trout. Stocked brownies love corn. If you're going to use corn for trout, don't do what most people do. I can't tell you how many times fishing for stock trout in, in streams, I'd see a guy fishing with corn, and he's losing his bait, losing his bait, losing his bait, and I'm nailing fish after fish, and I've got a full creel, and I'm leaving, and he hasn't caught a fish yet. And you look over, and what's he got? He's got some off-brand, cheap-ass, you know, 13-cent a can corn. It's just for bait. Why would I? Um, I'm not big on GMOs. You know this. Uh, and long before there was GMOs, I was doing this. And you're not feeding the fish, you're catching the fish. Understand that. You're not chumming with this stuff. Green giant nuggets. Nothing else. Green giant nugget kernel corn has the whole corn kernel down to the point. They're big, plump, hard 
corn in a can. You drain that out, bait holder hook that's big enough to fit two nuggets on it, put the tip of the hook through the point of the kernel. It stays on great, it's bright yellow, they hammer it. I have not found corn to be very good trout bait later in the year. I found it right after the trucks and the float stalkers dump the fish in. When you're fishing for, you know, typical stock trout, it's deadly because the fish have been on pellets. And it's similar to the, the pellet, and they like it. And it also kind of looks like salmon eggs. So um, I think that they like corn, and I think that if you use the right corn, you catch a lot of fish. And I found this to be the case, by the way, with a lot of human food baits, that people go cheap because it's bait, and they don't do as well. Catfish love hot dogs. Bullheads and channel cats both love hot dogs. What do people do? They buy, like, the Kroger brand or the, you know, Albertsons brand cheap Hot dog, Oscar Mayer beef wieners, stay on the hook better. Fish like bread, some fish like bread. I used to fish for carp in a pond. And I would just fish with ultralight rod, number 10 bait holder hook, hook, take a piece of the bread, usually a little bit of white and crust, fold it over once, pull the hook into it, no weight, flip it out on this pond, and these, these, these carp in the evening would just come up and suck stuff off the, off the top. And these fish were all two, three pound fish. And you catch them on ultralight rods with four-pound line. It's fun as hell. But if you, you use cheap bread, they would hit it, and it would just fall off the hook. You'd use better quality bread. It would stay on the hook. So just a little aside there that when you're using certain human foods as baits, going with a premium, and, and that doesn't mean always spending the most money. It means what has the best texture, what's going to stay on better. And you'll notice like with hot dogs, and you use these Oscar Mayer wieners, I'm serious, that when you put one of those on a hook and you put it in the water, there's an oil that comes off it, and I think that's a big part of what makes the catfish so attracted to it is that oil. And I have tried generic hot dogs, and I have not done as well. I'm not saying it won't work. I'm saying I have not done as well. Uh, so trout, corn, again, green giant nuggets, minnows, um, or night crawlers. Night crawlers being my favorite, generally about a half of a night crawler. I really like big night crawlers, the big old orange collar on them, and you cut that worm in half, use the tail first. When you use the head, put the hook right through that collar just one time and let that thing drift, and boy, they will hammer it. Uh, there's a lot of other things you can do for trout. If you have places where the water's deep enough and slow enough, a spinner is deadly on them, like a rooster tail spinner with like a willow or a Colorado blade. Um, and the It's it's a weird thing, but you would think you'd want to pull that spinner upstream, and you can, and you can, but then again, that fish sees you, he's got to fight the current and chase the thing upstream, and when cert in certain situations, it's really the only way you can run a, a spinner is upstream, but when the water's slow enough, and you can retrieve that spinner just fast enough to get the blade moving, just fast enough to suspend it and keep that blade moving, and pull it downstream, it pisses them off, and they, I mean, I've had fish that will ignore big old fat night crawler, big old fat mealworm, big old fat uh, minnow, and you bring that, that, that rooster tail past them, and you're going, you know, you're going downstream with it really slow, and that blade just wop, 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 wop. And I've seen them hit it in ways that I almost think have to be out of anger. The beauty of fishing with spinners for trout as well is if you're a catch-and-release spin fisherman, it's the best bet because you always get lip hooks and you can always release them. I, I've had very few actually inhale a spinner. I've had it once or twice, bigger fish, but usually you get a good lip hook and it's easy to, to do a catch and release on trout. I am not a catch and release trout guy. 
Um, when I used to fish for native fish, I did release most of my fish. Um, and the way that I would handle that, here's another little aside. So there's a special thing called a barbless hook. And you can buy them for lots of money. Or what you can do is get your needle nose pliers that I told you to have yesterday and just smash the barb flat. So I'd use like a number 10, number 8 bait holder hook for, for these brook trout. And I would just take my needle nose pliers and just crimp that barb. Would you lose a few more fish? Yes, but it made it a lot easier to do catch and release. And what you could do is push the barb down to where it was a little bit of barb. So it worked, but it wasn't as vicious on the fish during a release. So that's one way you can uh, improve your, your catch and release. The other thing, if you're doing catch and release with trout, you really want to maintain constant contact with the line, which is a good idea anyway, and hook set your hook early versus late. You might miss a few more hookups, but you're going to get a good high percentage of hooks in the mouth and the lip, and you're going to be able to release those fish without having them with a hook down their throat. I think if you gut hook a trout or gill, you're down into the gills and that fish is bleeding, put it in the creel and take it home. Unless it's not legal, put it in the creel, take it home. Trout are one of my favorite fish to eat. Um, somebody suggested we do a show on cooking. I'll pepper some stuff in, but maybe we'll do a, a full cooking show in the future. But one of my favorite ways to do trout, filleted. Okay, you just fillet both sides off, leave the skin on. Put them in a piece of foil, skin side down, a little bit of butter, a little bit of, uh, of uh, basil, and a little sprig of sumac. Yes, I said sumac. If you don't have any sumac, you can use a little squeeze of lemon. Uh, a little salt and pepper. Close the foil, high, high heat on the grill. Put them on there. As soon as you hear just the, the, the hint of the butter sizzling, take the fish off. Open it, look at it. If it doesn't look done, don't put it back on. It's hot as hell in there. Close it back up and wait a couple of minutes, and the fish will steam through and you won't overcook it. That's one of my favorite, and I love smoked trout as well. When you can get bigger trout, lots of them, uh, just brine in salt water. A little salt and pepper on them, slow smoked until they're cured. Just wonderful. I wish I lived somewhere where I could fish for them still. There's not a lot of trout here. They stock a few places early spring with little bitty ones for kids to go catch. And I'm not taking the fish away from the kids. Uh, if I lived somewhere I could get salmon, I would be in heaven. Um, my favorite moving water fish, though, is the smallmouth bass. Um, even when I talk about fishing in lakes and being here in the south, Um, you're not going to hear me talk a lot about largemouth bass because smallmouth have ruined me. From a standpoint of, of fighting ability, uh, jumping, pulling, and just cool factor, to me a smallmouth is about four times cooler than a largemouth. And I know I just made a lot of dedicated bass fishermen upset, but you've probably never caught a lot of smallmouths if, if, if I made you upset. Um, there's some more northern fish that like colder waters. Um, As the name implies, they have a smaller mouth than a large mouth. But I'll put it to you this way. If you catch a one-pound smallmouth in a lake on the same rod as a two-pound largemouth, you have about the same fight uh, on the fish. If you catch a one-pound smallmouth in moving water, especially fast-moving water with light gear, it's like catching a three-pound bass in a lake as far as what it takes to bring that fish in and land it successfully. Um, there's just something about them that they have this, this vigor, especially when they're in moving water. And I've seen little fish, I'm talking half pound smallmouth bass. You cast upstream, you're working the bait down, you feel the pickup, boom, you set the hook, 
And it's like that fish just knows instinctively. And you just see the line race, and that fish goes downstream. It races right past you downstream and turns in the current, and it's like pulling a little football through the current. So he's he's not just using his, his vigor and strength. He's using some sort of instinctive fish knowledge to know, hey, I'm in trouble, and something's pulling me this way. Let me use the water to fight it. Uh, they, they jump. They're great. Just great fish. I will occasionally take smallmouth for food. I generally release most of them. The smaller the body of water, the more likely I am to release the fish. And here's why. I'm not an uber greeny polar bear hugging conservationist. By the way, if you hug a polar bear, you're probably going to die because uh, it will eat you. But I do believe in conservation. I also believe that when we look at a resource, we have to say to ourselves, if I'm going to remove this resource, what will it take for this resource to be replaced? And can I actually damage the totality of the resource by removing too much of it? In some instances, it would be hard. Fishing for white bass, which we'll talk about today, you can go out and take a limit every day, and you're not going to put much of a dent in the population. In fact, you might actually help the population by preventing some stunning, by you know removing some of the population so there's more food for everybody else. And it's a fish that lives on average three and a half to five and a half years. And most of the fish that are eating size are one and a half, two and a half years old. So it's, it's, it reproduces at a high rate, it feeds at a high rate, it grows fast, and it dies fast. So that's a fish that I'm really comfortable taking a lot of. Same with bluegills and things like that. A largemouth or a smallmouth bass in a small stream, you know, something as wide as your, your, your bedroom, is a fish that will often take to get to a foot long 8 to 10 years in a northern climate. 8 to 10 years. And that, to me, is not worth a couple small fillets. So I'll generally let them go. Now, we used to fish the Susquehanna for smallmouths. This river is over a mile long, or a mile wide. Um, it's a big river. There's tons of fish in it. There's lots of feed in it. The fish grow fast. It's easy to go out there and catch a stringer limit of six fish, you know, and have them all be 14, 16 inches long. So occasionally when we would go out there, I would bring a stringer of fish home. Not every time, but a lot of times. Because it was so easy to do and because the fish have a lot more space and, and water to work with and food to eat and, and it just doesn't take anywhere near as long for that fish to get to that size and the population is much larger. Some of these small, smallmouth streams that I used to fish, you know, there's only so many fish in there. Now, I've had days... One place we used to fish, and I'll get to my methods for this, is a place on the Little Schuylkill River that I will never give the location away to anybody. If I take you there, I might blindfold you to take you there. And here's why. I've never seen another human being fishing there, except for one very good friend or family members. That's the only people I've ever seen there. My wife knows where this location is. She's sworn to secrecy and probably couldn't remember how to get there anyway. Um... It is a series of very shallow spots and deep holes, and that is smallmouth heaven on small, smallmouth streams. The piece of the little schuylkill that I fish is actually in a state game land. It's in state game land, but it's divided by a road. And there's only a little piece of the game lands that actually goes across the road, but it encompasses about a half a mile of this river. There's a railroad track. And the railroad company puts up signs, they post it, stay off the tracks, etc. Which basically is not saying the land is private, it's saying stay off the tracks because if you get hit by a train it's not our fault. 
And while you they can post it so you can't hang out on the tracks, they can't impede you from crossing them. Right? This is public land. You can't impede my crossing the tracks. It's a dirt road. It dead ends down by the tracks. When you get down there, there's all these posted signs. And there's a gate. It's for access for the railroad people. People see it. I don't think they even realize the river is just beyond it. And they don't go there. And I go there in the summer. I used to go there in the summer when we lived up there. And I'd catch 100 to 150 fish in a day. And I remember taking my wife there. And I'll bet you there were days where we caught a couple hundred fish between the two of us. Easy. And some of them were nice fish, 14, 15-inch fish. And again, in that body of water, those fish are probably 8 to 12 years old. Most of what we would catch, 7, 8, 9-inch fish, which on light spinning gear in that moving water was like dynamite. Now, here's what made that place so awesome. And this is one of the, one of the things you're looking for. Flat, shallow runs, deep pool, flat, shallow run, deep pool, flat, shallow run, deep pool. Some of the deep pools were, I don't know, 50 feet long. Some were a couple hundred feet long. And in the summer, when that when the little schuylkill would drop a few inches in its average depth, there were very few places in that stretch that those fish could be comfortable. So they congregated in there. This is another reason I won't take them out of that body of water. You're catching lots of fish, yes. It gives you the illusion of a very high population of fish. But what you've seen is five miles of life congregate into a half mile to get through the heat of the summer. So it's kind of not cool for you to be basically hammering them during that period of time. I don't think we ever took a fish out of there to eat. I have caught a few trout there while fishing for, for bass. That part of the river is not stocked with trout, but it is above there and below there. So these are fish that have moved into the area. And I've, I've taken trout out of there, but I've never taken a bass out of there. So I'm not telling you not to keep fish. I'm telling you to be selective in what you keep, when you keep, and how much you keep. Okay, so smallmouths, I fish more for sport than for, for, for flesh, so to say. Now, my favorite three baits for smallmouth, nightcrawlers, um, crayfish, and helgramites. My favorite favorite is a Helgramite, if you can get them. They're hard to find, and they're expensive to buy. But I found you get big, healthy Helgramite. You put them on the hook. You throw them out there. You catch a bass. He's still, usually still there. He's usually still alive. You put him out again. You catch another bass. By now, he's dead, but he's still pretty much in one piece. Throw it out. You catch another one. You bring him in. He's kind of tore up, but it still works. And I've caught six to eight bass on one Helgramite. They have a, a pincher-like mouth. Again, they look like the thing from Star Trek, the Wrath of Khan, that goes in the guy's ear. They kind of resemble that. And like a long, flat worm with that pincher. And there's a big, hard collar right behind their pinchers. And you take that hook, and you go right through there. I'm usually using you know, a number two to, uh, to maybe a two-aught, which is going past zero and up the other side. So number two to two-aught, depending on the size of the fish I'm catching, bait holder hook. Um, for smallmouths. If I can fish with no weight, I fish with no weight. I fish, as always, just enough weight to get the bait to present right and move through. Usually a small split shot to a, a medium-sized split shot is enough to get that done, along with enough weight to cast out. Uh, I use night crawlers, and I also use crayfish. Crayfish are great if you can find especially small ones, ones that are about an inch long. Um, 
And if you can get them soft-shelled when they've molted, that then they're like candy. This is going to sound cruel, but it does work. If you basically crack one side of the, the body shell of the crayfish and peel a little bit of it off, exposing the flesh underneath, and then hook that crayfish for the tail, I've gotten just as good a results as that with softies. That's what we used to call the, the, the molded ones. We call them softies. But the way I fish with those, again, you're using a pretty decent-sized hook. Now you're probably stepping up to that two-odd hook. You turn the crayfish upside down, and you'll see little segments in the, the tail. It looks like a little mini lobster tail. And almost to the body, maybe one or two segments down from the body, push the hook in and bring the hook toward the tail. And push the hook into the tail to where the point of the hook is just barely ex exposed. So now you flip the, the crayfish over and you rub the top of his tail, but you can just feel... The, the prick of the, the hook starting to come through the other side of the tail. Otherwise, when you go to set the hook, it might not come through the tail and you, you might miss, right? So it's just starting to come through the backside of the tail. And then you fish that the way, you know, drift it. You can also, and the nice thing about doing their tail is crayfish move backwards. So drop it into an area and slowly move it and slow retrieve and hop it so it looks like the crayfish is moving backwards. Night crawlers are... Probably my go-to bait because they're easiest to acquire. If you can't find them, they're cheap to buy. Pennsylvania, with the deep soils, all we did was go out with a flashlight every time it rained, and we kept a huge worm bin in our refrigerator of night crawlers. I don't use night crawlers that much here in the south. I don't keep them on hand, and I don't have them crawling around everywhere with my alkaline soil and my very shallow soils where we live now. So if I do see a worm, I leave it be for now as I build up the soil. But if you keep worms, I don't even know if they make this anymore because it's been so long since I've kept worms in the refrigerator for fishing. They make a thing that was called magic worm food. I'm going to check now and see if it's still available. Okay, I looked it up. They still make it. Most people say, well, just feed your worms coffee grinds. When I've kept worms and fed them coffee grinds, fishing worms, night crawlers, not red wigglers for, you know, making compost. They're always lethargic and weak and just not healthy. I don't know what the hell's in this stuff. Again, it's called Magic Worm Food. It comes in a yellow container. It looks a little bit like cornmeal when you sprinkle it on. The night crawlers that eat this stuff, and you keep them, again, in not a freezer or refrigerator. They like that cold temperature. And I use, uh, the bins I use are like, it looks like a styrofoam cooler, and it's held together with elastic. I'll see if I can find one of these on, um, on uh, Amazon and put a link in for you today. And what makes it cool with the elastics, you can open the top or the bottom because the worms are always down on the bottom. Well, the part you keep up, you sprinkle this stuff on there. These worms are like leather when they come out of that container. They are hard. They are solid. They are fat. They are plump. And they stay on a hook. And uh, even when I was buying worms, I would buy worms a couple weeks in advance of a fishing trip, put them into one of these bins in a, in a refrigerator, and give them this magic worm food. Again, I don't know what the hell it does, but, I mean, it's like fishing with a leather worm that's actually a live worm. With smallmouth bass, unless you're hitting really, really small fish, I generally use a whole worm, and you get the what they, we call orange collars, big, swollen, mature worm that's probably about to you know, cast an egg case, and that collar would get orange, bright orange. Again, this magic worm food, you end up with a lot of them. You take your number two bait holder hook down again to about a two-aught and go on the top side, not through the worm's nose and mouth and double hook and triple hook, just one time through that collar, coming through the top. Deep hook all the way, so start above the collar and come out below the collar. 
And then if you can, again, little to no weight, that big worm will float and drift. And if you're in deep water, it will slowly sink gently down. And it's like having someone come up to you and take freshly made creme brulee and waving it, that caramel-scented, you know, torched, top under your nose and then taking the spoon and cracking through it so you've got the crack and they're just waving it slowly in front of your mouth and you haven't eaten for days that's what it's like to, to, to in, in my experience to bass when they see that worm just settling like that or drifting downstream like that and i've had that work very well in lakes with spot fishing which i'll talk about later as well but that is my number one rig for smallmouths it's a if I, again if i can do it with no weight no weight big whole worm One hook through because a bass isn't going to peck at it. Even a little bass, you know, a little four or five inch bass, it sees a worm like that, it's going to hammer it. And generally, they don't grab the tail. When you have that whole worm on, they kind of see that head. And their instinctive is to attack the head. So they grab that thing. And when they grab it, you set the hook. And I've, with these big worms, fed magic worm food, never as many as Helgramites, but I've caught two, three fish on one worm. If I'm catching smaller fish and the worm's torn up, but there's still some, you know, an inch or two, a lot of times I'll just rehook it a couple times. Now I can't lob it through just the collar anymore, but I'll put a couple hooks through and see. And if I don't get anything quick, I'll go ahead and change it. But a lot of times I catch three, four fish on one worm if they're big, healthy worms. So my big thing with smallmouth is looking for deep water, moving water going into deep water. The ledges and everything I said is true. But I, I've had less success trying to catch them like behind a rock and little little eddies and stuff like that in the riffles. They really like to move into that deeper water. So those are smallmouths, and that's my my primary way of catching smallmouths. Catfish, catfish are in streams, deep, slow water, ledges. Um, if you can find a place like that on a stream or a creek, especially as you move south out of the northeast where we've been so far with the trout and the smallmouth. You get into the slow sloth waters or even big clear rivers like the Brazos here. There's all this nice little riffled water on you. get these big, slow, deep holes. If you can find a spot like that that you can get to a couple of times a week and you can chum it before you fish it for a couple of weeks, it turns into a honey hole really fast. The thing about rivers and streams that makes them different one of the things that makes them different from lakes is fish in lakes kind of just, they hang out in their area and then they move to another area when the pattern shifts. And then they move to another area when the pattern shifts. They don't travel as much unless they're a predatory, you know, pack hunter, wolf mentality like white bass or stripers. Rivers by their natural movement just encourage fish to kind of travel along like a road or a highway. And they just come checking stuff out. So... What happens is, you know, there's a catfish, and he, he plows his way through some shallower water because there wasn't a lot going on in his last hole, and he gets to this hole. And then, oh, something smells good here, and he finds food. Well, he's camping out now, and you just they keep kind of dropping in like that. That's one of the things about river fishing that makes it, you know, better for the guy that wants to set up a rod holder and just kick back at the campfire and watch the rod tips. Um, because fish naturally move through rivers, a lot of times you can fish a spot. And remember I said yesterday, if you're not catching fish, change bait, change tactics, move. If you've got a good bait that you know the fish in the river take and the fish are present and you wait long enough, fish generally will pass through a good spot in the river. So you can just sit there. But if you can chum it, 
Now you've really got something. Even if you can't, those spots hold catfish. My favorite way to fish for catfish in those situations, if there's channel cats, it's almost impossible to beat Danny King's punch bait, a treble hook, and a weight that's big enough to hold the line down and keep the line taut. That's my number one way to pull channel cat fish out of a river. I've got some other ones I'm going to give you, but that is dynamite. I like to do that, again, with treble hooks and enough weight to keep a tight line. I might set four rods up. Oh, check your regulations. Some places you can't set four rods up. You can only have two per angler, etc. But you set your rod holders up, good solid rod holders where the rod's not going in the water. Um, you set your tight lines up. You put that stuff out, and it's, it's dynamite. Another thing you can use for bait, set up the same way. Use a circle hook or a kale hook that I talked about yesterday. Same type of weight, fresh shad or even frozen shad. That way, when that fish takes that bait, that circle or kale hook will just self-hook, and you'll get a lot of hookups that way. With treble hooks and a punch bait, it usually takes a little bit more paying attention. Um, if you're fishing just to keep them and you don't care, what you can do is you go to any type of a bait with a bait holder, and most catfish will swallow a bait. They'll just, if you just let them go, a bait that they can't just pull off the hook, it's not soft, Any type of good catfish bait, they'll swallow it. And then you're going to have a pretty high percentage of landing fish if you're catching fish the size that you want to keep. So that's channel catfish in a nutshell. Um, I guess, again, shad and Danny Kings are my two favorite baits. Punch baits in general are all pretty good. I like the way Danny King stays on a hook. The way I use Danny Kings is I generally am using a fairly large treble hook, something around a number four. Uh, if they're smaller fish, I might drop to a six. You take, it comes in a tub, don't put your hands on it. It you, you will stink for days. It doesn't stink that bad, but it stinks consistently, if that makes sense. I've, I've seen catfish baits that smell worse. It doesn't smell like putrid rancidness, but it smells like dead fish. Because there's a lot of shad in there uh, and other things uh, in there, along with uh, the stuff from cattails, the fluffy stuff from cattails. It helps it you know, stick together. They call it a punch bait because you punch the hook into it with a stick. So you put the stick, you put the hook on the top of it, you take a stick, push it down into the bait, and then pull it out at a 45-degree angle. And the hook will take up all the bait it needs and lob that back into a hole. With shad, I really prefer, if I can, to catch some in a, in a cast and have them be very fresh. The frozen stuff you buy in a bait store falls off the hook pretty readily, especially with smaller fish. If there's larger fish in there, it's not a problem because they just, they just hammer it. Um, with blue cats, I like to get more into a live bait, shiners, big minnows, creek chubs, small bluegills, things like that. Flatheads, I have to admit, I'm not a, an experienced flathead catfish uh, guy. I caught one kind of by accident uh, on a rod and reel. I've caught some bank lining. Uh, I'll talk about that more in a future show, um, or limb lining, actually. But I, fishing with a rod and reel, I've, I've caught one total flathead catfish in my life mostly blues and channel cats and mostly honestly channels channels are my favorite catfish to catch um if the nice thing about channels is they're pretty big on sticking together in similar sizes if you start catching eight inch channel catfish go deeper move chum more do something because you're probably going to catch lots of them that size and you're probably going to have lots of stolen bait 
If you start catching 14 to 16 inch channel cats, you're going to catch a lot of 14 to 16 inch channel cats if they're, if they're schooled in that area. I'm talking about the one lone fish you catch. I'm talking about consistently catching lots of them. When you start doing that, they tend to pattern around the same size within four to six inches of each other. My favorites are about 14 to 22 inches. They make a nice fillet. They're big enough to be worth doing. 14's getting to where I'm not sure if I'm going to keep it or not, if there's a lot of fish around. Um, but they're just great. And you hear all of these amazing ways you have to clean a catfish. You nail it to a tree and you cut the skin. You pull it off of pliers. If they're talking fish that are a couple feet and down, you lay it on its side, you cut the fillet off. You flip the fillet over, you take the knife, and you de-skin it. Leave the fillet attached at the tail, okay, so that you can hold the whole fish, put the, 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 the knife underneath the flesh, between the flesh and the skin, and run your knife down the fillet board, and the fillet comes right off like any other fish out there. There's nothing special or amazing about cleaning catfish other than they're slimy, and one of the gloves like I talked about yesterday can help you hold on to it a bit better. One of the things that can be helpful, though, with catfish sometimes, if you've thrown them on ice or whatever, or they're dead or they're still alive and they're, they're stiff, their they're spines, which are just the three fins, the, the, the whiskers don't hurt you, but the three fins, the dorsal and the two fins off to the side of the pectorals, get stiffened out. When you try to flip it over, either the top one wants to poke you in the hand, or the bottom one doesn't let you lay the fish flat on the, on the thing. So a pair of diagonal cutting pliers and just snip those off, If, if they're in the way, fillet and then use them the way, you know, fry them, grill them, whatever you would do. Maybe we'll do a cooking show. When you get fish bigger than about two feet, this is where I'm fine with the whole skinning. I haven't seen many fish that really need to have their, their, their head nailed to a tree. Generally, what I'll do is take a piece of string or a rope or a stringer and yes, hang the fish from a tree limb, cut the skin around the neck, right? And then down the back. So you just, just with your knife, you just cut just through the skin all the way down the back to the tail and get a pair of pliers and, and the skin will pull off fairly easily. If it pulls a little flesh with it, let it go. It's not that big a deal. Cut the head off, gut the fish. So now you've got, you know, no head down to the tail, skinned whole catfish. Now, depending on how big it is, stake it. Right. If it's, if it's not that big, you can do a smaller fish, like a couple feet or less this way and leave it whole and you can actually cook the whole fish like that. It's pretty good. But you can get a, you know, a fish that's 24, 28 inches, something like that, a six, eight pound catfish. You take that skinned thing and cut them about an inch and a half to two inches thick. Again, size it based on the size of the fish. Now here's how you cook it. I'm going to cheat and I'm going to give you a way to cook. You're going to want to catch catfish after I tell you this. It's so easy. Everybody's worried fish is going to fall apart. Catfish, especially big catfish, is a good, firm, fleshed fish. It also has a lot of grease in it, a lot of oil, a lot of fat. It needs very little, very, very little. Hot fire, gas grill or charcoal, salt and pepper. Put the steak on the grill, straight on the grill. Now, you have to have a good, cleaned, well-prepared grill. It's not going to stick. All right, so if you have a crappy, unclean grill that food sticks to all the time, don't do this because it will stick. But if it's a good prepared, you know, cast iron grill service or stainless steel grill service, you routinely grill steaks on it. When you go to flip your steak or flip a burger, it doesn't stick and fall apart. As long as that's your grill, put that fish on the grill straight away. You will start to see white grease cook out of it very, very quickly if it's on a good hot flame. 
the grease will go down into the flames. And little shoots, it's not like chicken where it'll catch on fire, right? It's not that much grease. Little shoots of flames will come up and start to singe and sear the bottom of it. It will turn a gorgeous brown. Flip it over and cook the other side. When it's done, it's done. A lot of people tell me that they don't like bigger catfish. That, you know, once they get over about two feet long, they're really not worth keeping. They, they don't taste as good. Uh, none of them have ever made them that way. That's one of my secrets. That is, and you can get fancy. You can herb it up. You can put some Chef Keith seafood seasoning on it, whatever. Salt and pepper, though, is all I've ever had to do with that. Uh, next fish that I love to fish for in rivers, and a lot of times I just catch them when I'm catfishing, is freshwater drum. Yes, I'm serious. I do not consider drum a trash fish at all. If you catch drum in marshy, stinky, stagnant water, it doesn't taste very good. Because a fish generally tastes like the water it comes from. When you catch drum in clear, clean water, it's a good eating fish. Now, here's the thing about drums. And this applies, and it's amazing that people eat redfish, right? Which is a fresh, is a saltwater drum. Or black drum, which are a saltwater drum. And, and then they turn around with freshwater drum and go, ew, I don't like that. Or they'll eat sea trout, by the way, are members of the drum family. So are sand trout. And people that fish for redfish understand that redfish is a beautiful fish, but it requires proper handling. That means if the fish is not going to go back in the water and swim away, that that fish either stays alive right up until you clean it, or it immediately goes on ice. And it is chilled through at once, and it never sits in water. And then it's filleted, or however you're going to do the fish, and then that fish is, is patted dry, and it's kept cold, period, or it goes into the freezer, period. It does not sit around in the refrigerator for days on days. It does not sit in bags in a cooler, drowning in ice water, and it does not sit around uh, on a stringer dead because what happens with all members of the drum family, they're soft flesh fish, and if they're treated that way, the flesh gets mushy. And then you say, oh, it's mushy. It tastes like mud. It doesn't taste like mud. It tastes like mushy fish, which makes you think of mud. If you handle freshwater drum the same way, you get the same results. In fact, I would tell you that I might like it better. Freshwater drum, again, when it's not from a sewage treatment plant or somewhere where they're using them to clean things up, has white, snow white flesh. It's delicate and sweet, and it's not that bony either. So I don't want to hear that little excuse. Um, you take the fillets off. Some as they get bigger, they get a line of bones down the middle of the fillet. So you take the fillet, you lay it on the ground, you cut the top of the fillet off, the bottom fillet off, and throw the middle away, just like you do with a jack, which is a saltwater fish. And you just throw that little piece of strip meat away. It's okay. It's fine. Um, a nice way to do drum. A nice, nice way to do drum. Leave the skin on the fillet. Butter, salt, and pepper. Hot fire. Put the fish on the grill. No foil at all. Skin side down. As soon as it'll barely flake with a fork, get it the hell off. You'll love it that way. If you leave it there until you think it's done... Right When it forks easily, flakes easily with a fork, it will taste like mush. It's just an easy fish to overcook. It really is. It's Most drum species are not really that good of a fish to fry. Because the fry oil is too hot and it over... If you want to try it, get into the crappie mode. When you fry most fish, 350, 375, somewhere in there. Crappie, you, you take that oil temperature down to 325 degrees. If I were going to try it with drum, and I never have, 
I would probably take it down to 300 degrees. In fact, this is what I think I would do. I would bread my fish fresh as I possibly could. I would set it one layer deep only on a plate. I would put it in the refrigerator and get the temperature down. Right before I fried it, I would shove it in the freezer. I'm serious. I've done this with other fish. For about 10 minutes, I would want to chill the fish and make the fish hard. And I would drop that fish into about 300 degree oil. And it's not when it floats high like most fish. As soon as it starts to float, as soon as it's golden, get it out and drain it. And what that'll do is it's going to get plenty hot to cook the fish through. Okay? But it's going to take longer for the internal temperature of the fish to come up. And give more time for the breading to crisp. I probably wouldn't bother doing that with drum. Grilled is probably the best way to go. Cooked fast. Fast and just enough to get it through. But what I like about drum is, you know, you're out, you've got your medium light action rod, you're fishing for channel cats, you've got your, your you know, your, your bait out. They will pick up punch bait, but they'll definitely pick up worms and, and clams, uh, like freshwater mussels, which are great for catfish as well. They come through, they pick that thing up, you set the hook all of a sudden, and you're sitting here with a 20-pound fish. And I've seen bigger ones. The biggest one I've ever caught was 23 pounds. Um, and I caught that at, not in the river, though. It was at uh, Lake Palestine. Anyway, the reason I really like drum is just, just you just never know when one's going to show up. And they are just a hard-fighting fish. They don't jump. They don't make surging runs. They're just a bulldog Uh, heavy fight. And uh, again, I do actually like to eat them. And even if I didn't, I think I would still welcome them just because they're a good hard fighting fish. It, it actually is ironic to me that some people who are primarily catch and release fishermen have a problem with any fish. Like, oh, I thought I had this really great bass, but it turned out to be a drum. Did it fight? Did it pull hard? Did it run out your drag? Was it, was it tough to land? Well, yeah. Were you going to keep the bass and eat it? No. Then what's your problem? I, I've never understood that. Um, I do understand when you're, you're fishing for fish that you're keeping and you catch a fish that you don't find desirable for the table. But otherwise, I don't get it. Anyway, freshwater drum, I just had to throw in there. Um, and I do want to point out again that they're not a bad eating fish if they're from good, clean water and if the, the flesh is handled the way you'd handle a redfish. That You'll then turn around and go to a high-end uh, restaurant and pay lots of money to have a, a piece of redfish. The last one... And I will definitely revisit these guys when we talk about lakes, white bass. I've probably eaten more white bass since I moved to Texas than any other fish, two fish species, I guess, that I've caught combined. White bass are a great lake fish, but they also are prominent in rivers, especially in the spring. And if you can find a river where they run for their spawn in the spring, it's like a micro salmon run. And my, my primary way that I fish for white bass in, in, in rivers has just been with spinners. Unlike many fish that I actually really enjoy fishing with bait, white bass, if they're around, and that's really what it comes down to, are they around, are such aggressive feeders that in the time you could catch one fish with bait, I could probably catch five or six with, with an artificial. So I really like to go to artificials for sand bass, white bass, however you want to call them. I generally fish heavily with slabs in lakes, but most rivers, slabs don't do well. They're too shallow, faster water, what have you. A good spinner, uh, just a straight spinner, or uh, if it's calm water that they're in and they're feeding on the surface, 
one of the dynamite things I've used for white bass in both rivers and streams is what's called a torpedo. And the clear ones, for some reason, work really well. It's a small bait. looks kind of like a fat, chubby minnow. The ones I use are about two inches long. They've got a little propeller on the front, a little propeller on the back, and two treble hooks that hang down. And you either just wind them slowly so they just come across the surface, or you kind of give them a little jerk and a little reel, a little jerk and a little reel. And when you give them a jerk, those those uh, propellers kind of... And it looks like another fish has hit the surface. And as I was talking about yesterday... Many fish are heavily competitive with each other with feeding, and white bass, because they're a wolf pack type of hunter, they're extremely competitive with each other. And what they've just seen is a fish hit the surface, so they run over there to see what it is, and there's something that looks like a fish, so I'm going to bite it, I'm going to eat it, bam. And I've, I've done very well with topwaters and spinners for white bass uh, in, in rivers. I, again, I've never really fished heavily for white bass in any situation with live bait or cut bait. I just don't see the point. Because they're, they're so big on, oh, something shiny, let me eat it. Um, I guess there's probably places on rivers where you can find deeper water and jig for white bass like we do in lakes. But I've never actually been, you know, part and parcel to that. Basically, big, uh, Colorado blade, uh, style MEPS spinners. Uh, silver is, is all that I've ever used for them in, in rivers. And white bass are a fish that works like this. Catching them is easy, finding them is hard. So in rivers, unless you're in a place where they're kind of stuck in the river and they can't get into a lake somewhere for the summer, it's you're going to find them in deep water uh, through the summer most of the time. In the spawning season, which in Texas runs from like February up until just a little bit uh, in, into May, um, they're going to be somewhere on the river moving through, just like salmon, going going up to spawn. And if you find where they're moving through and you put shiny things in front of them, they're going to eat it. I mean, it's it's that simple, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, there's a 25-fish limit, and you can limit out an hour or less, uh, even if you're getting kind of selective with what size you take. A legal white bass in the state of Texas is 10 inches long. Um, if they're around, I try to stick to like a 12-inch fish. They're another fish that a lot of people just, I don't know what it is. People think that anything with red meat is bad. And then they turn around and pay like $40 a pound for sashimi-grade tuna that's red as it comes. Um, sand bass do have a bit of a fat that's not the best-tasting fat for a fish. The way that I found to deal with that is fillet your fish and, and skin them if you're going to skin them. Take all your fillets, put them in a bowl, and then get a garden hose or the, the rinser for your sink. Turn the water on high pressure, rinse the hell out of them dump the water off, rinse them a second time, and you'll see a lot of foam and the fat come off of them, and that'll reduce that fat content and take a little bit of it. I don't call it an off taste, but it's a taste. You, you know that it's there. Um, I won't go too deep into this, but we had tons of ways to do white bass just because they were so prolific, and we used to catch so many of them. I would go out three or four times a week and catch a limit every time I went out. I had some good friends out there that would fish for them, and a lot of times they would keep, you know, a dozen or two dozen fish. And uh, as we were loading up our boats at the ramp, we'd all kind of leave at the same time. They'd go like, I don't want to clean that many fish today. And, like, do you want them? So there was times I came up with 50, 60 uh, white bass and, you know, a half a dozen or a dozen uh, catfish. And so just with that number of them, I got into a, a, a kind of a point where, it really made sense to come up with a lot of different ways. So I'll give you a couple ways I've cooked white bass. For those of you like me that are paleo, make a mix 
of shredded Parmesan cheese and almond meal. Okay? Um, And if you want to put a little extra crunch in there, get yourself a bag of pork rinds and crush up and make them into basically pork rind breadcrumbs and mix like one-third almond meal, one-third shredded Parmesan cheese, not the powder, the shredded stuff, um, and, and the pork rinds. Dredge the fish in egg, roll it in that, put it on a plate, stick it in the refrigerator. Wait about an hour, repeat the process, and put it in the refrigerator again. This is not because it's delicate like when I was talking about trying to fry a drum. This just makes the coating really stick, right? So by by dredging it and, and dipping it twice in the mix and letting it sit for at least an hour each time, the, the, the mix gets kind of sticky. It stays on better. And deep fry that at 350 till it's brown. Beautiful, beautiful way to do them. Sand bass on the half shell, we used to call it. Fillet them. Cut the, the rib bones out, the, the lower rib belly bones out. Salt and pepper. Throw them on the grill. A little bit of lemon juice and butter. And just cook them skin side down till the skin it, you know starts to coil up a little bit and the fish is done. They're great like that. They're great whole. Leave the head on, gut them, rub the inside with a little bit of olive oil and uh, a little bit of butter and lemon, and then just throw the whole fish on the grill and cook both sides of it till the, the skin crisps. No, I don't scale them or anything like that. And then you just pull the skin off and go to town on them. They're, they're pretty big bone fish, so you don't have a lot of small bones. The, the flesh flakes off the bone. Um, we've done uh, sand bash chowder. Uh, which is like a fish chowder made with sand bass, and a bunch of other stuff that I'll talk about uh, when I do a cooking show. But sand bass, white bass, whatever you want to call them, they're like little stripers in your rivers and streams. If you can find them migrating, uh, it's like it's like salmon fishing, except they bite really, really like crazy. Like salmon, when they're making a run, you got to entice them to bite. These things just, if it's shiny, they hammer it. There's just so many of them going through. And again, this is a fish that you can feel good about taking a large limit home. You do not have to worry about the population of the white bass. Um, most largemouth bass fishermen have no respect for the sand bass, if you do, don't get upset with me. But I've talked to a lot of guys that are dedicated largemouth bass fishermen, and they're like, I don't see what the big deal is. I catch those things all the time, and they get in my way. Well, the thing is, they don't catch them all the time. They catch them once in a while. When they catch them, they catch a lot of them, so they become of the mindset that any idiot can catch sand bass. The truth is the sand bass is an easy fish to get to bite, but it can be a hard fish to find. They relate to different structure throughout the years, and usually what happens with bass fishermen is you get a wind blowing up against rocky points on a lake, and that pushes a lot of bait fish up there. So they're up there for their large mouths, and a school of sandies moves in and starts slamming the bait fish, and everything they put in the water, those sand bass are hitting. They don't want them, so after they catch four or five, they move to another location and, 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 you know, they go on about their business. They don't realize if they had stayed there, that might have went on for another ten minutes and that school will move on. And so they get this opinion like they're, they're always that easy because they run into them by accident. But if you don't find them, you, it doesn't do you any good. And they're a pack hunter. They're like a big wolf pack in the water. And they slash at bait fish. So anything that mimics a falling injured bait fish is going to work well for you. And again, the slab, the, the slab lure is probably the most versatile lure on the planet and very, very good uh, for sand bass and stripers and hybrids. But it has its limitations in rivers unless you have the deep water that you can work it with. Or if you have slow water, you can fish, fish slabs on the surface. More about that when I cover lakes. Anyway, I wanted to 
finish up with just a few other thoughts now that I've covered some of the fish that you can fish for in rivers. Um, one is how the hell do you find spots and access points? What I said yesterday, first of all, talk to people. Go to bait shops, tackle shops, sporting goods stores, anywhere along a river where there's a bait shop. Talk to the people. Where is that? Just ask them, where do, where do guys access the river? How do they get down to the river? What are they catching? What's hitting? What are they using? Uh, that type of thing. Get a map out. Look for bridges. Most of the time, if a river or stream crosses a, a, a road that has a bridge over it, there is access there. It might not be the most convenient access, but you can get down to the banks there. And usually, you have public easement access so that it's okay for you to go and fish that area. And just try spots. Another great idea is start researching the area that you know of rivers and streams in on the Internet. And instead of looking for fishing sites... Look for sites that are sites run by paddlers, people that do canoes and kayaks. These guys know all the access points, places you can put a boat in, take a boat out, things like that. If they can put a boat in and take a boat out, you can get down there and wade fish or put a boat in to fish with as well, which I'll talk about more in a bit. But th that's the biggest thing is talking to people, looking at maps, and doing Internet research for paddling sites, and you will probably find there is a stream or a river near you that can be fished with access within an hour or so. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about, though, was fishing with canoes, kayaks, boats, uh, things like that. The beauty with this, especially, and this is something I've never done on the Brazos and I really need to do. I've, I've been on one canoe trip on the Brazos, and I just saw beautiful places to fish. There's lots of access points in the Brazos where... What people do is they they take two vehicles, they dump a canoe off, and they leave a vehicle downriver. And once they get down to their takeout point, they can go back up, get the other vehicle, load up the boats, and go home. And that might float through six, seven, eighteen miles of river, depending on where you're at and how long you want to float and how long you want to take to get there. If you can find reasonably short floats, two, three miles, a lot of times that river is going to go through private property, but navigable water in most states is not private property. Even if the river's on private property, you can fish from a boat, you can wade fish, you can do whatever, you can access the water. So you get back in areas where you might see a few people paddle by that are just out on a canoe trip, but you don't see a lot of fishermen. And you get into places where the fish have not been pressured, and they're a lot easier to catch because they're in a, they're in a far less of a of a of an alerted mindset, right? They're, it's more like being in the pristine wilderness type of thing. Um, in that type of fishing, there's two types of, of rivers that I have done this on. And one is your little bit swifter bodies of water, more like the Brazos River um, with canoes, kayaks, that type of thing, shallow water. You have to get out and pull the boat and things like that. And you're looking for your holes and all the other things that I applied, you know, I, I talked about earlier, makes sense from a standpoint of, access and what type of fish you're targeting. But then there's another type of river fishing that I love. It's ideal for like a flat bottom boat, like a John boat with a small outboard or a good trolling motor. And that's that slow moving river, the catfish river, the river that you just look at and you just go, I feel catfish here. I feel gar here. I feel rough fish in this river. I feel there's probably some carp around here and there's, You know, there, there, there's probably some drum in this, and it's it's not stagnant. It's just a slower moving, deeper river that you can easily move a john boat around. That is 
just beautiful for fishing, especially if you find things that, like that that have islands and places you can pull your boat up and kind of set up camp and fish for a while. And some of the some of the coolest things that we've done with that type of fishing is take a John boat with a little motor on it, go down river, have a vehicle to pick up and do an overnight camping trip somewhere along the river. Um, especially if you know there's like an island that's ideally suited for that because that boat can carry a ton of gear, almost quite literally. If you go like a 16-foot john, you, know, you have a, a, a load rating probably somewhere near half a ton. So you can carry, or a couple canoes. Canoes have huge load ratings for their size. So a couple canoes or a john boat can carry quite a bit of camping gear, full-size cooler, extra food, you know, have your GPS so you don't get lost, but the river tells you where you're going anyway, all that good stuff. And, you know, load up a couple adult beverages in the cooler and go down the river. You know, say it's only a two-mile float, if you have a nice camping spot somewhere a mile down, float a mile, set up, and fish there. And if you want to take your boat out and do some, some other things while you're there but have that base of operations set up, a little tent or a cot or a hammock, it is a great way to spend the night. And then you're out for two days. So you can have a double limit, as long as your possession limit's not breached. Do check with your game right, fish, fish and game regulations for any of this stuff and see what... There, there's, there's two types of things out there. There's called a daily limit and a possession limit. Most states I've fished in, understanding that some fishermen actually go out for two days in a row before they go home, have what's called a possession limit. And that means that you, if you had a limit of 10 fish, for instance, you could have 20 in your possession. Now, you better not have 20 on a stringer hanging off your belt. That's, that's a little bit different. But if you were stopped as you're packing up and they open your cooler and there's two guys and there's 40 fish, you're okay. How long were you guys here? Two days. Don't push that one. I mean, seriously. Uh, but most do have that two-day, two times the field limit, day limit, as the possession limit, which means if you stay for three days, you have three days' worth of limits, you're in violation of the possession limit. So you, if you're going to be out on an extended trip, you either need to take less stuff home or think about a way to deal with that, some way to transport it elsewhere or whatever in the interim, or maybe eat it. Because if it's eaten and it's gone, as far as I'm concerned, it never happened. Um, but the small boats on the deeper, slower, swamp-like rivers, float fishing with canoes, those are great ways to get into access points that a lot of other people can't get to. You know, and if you, if you think about like a 10-mile float, You float about halfway of that and then set up camp there. You're five miles either way, and you're five miles either way from any random, you know, general access to the river. Um, it's peaceful. Again, it's like being kind of in the heart of the forest. And generally, even in the summer when it's hot, you're down at the river. You can wait. It keeps you cool. There's shade from the trees, things like that. It's just a great way to spend a summer afternoon or even a summer evening. And I think that is where we start to see the overlap where fishing kind of translates into the other outdoor sports like backpacking, like camping, like river floating. And to me, that's why I like, I really, really like river fishing because it, it has that kind of water highway capability to get away from other people. And as much as I'm a public personality and all, I'll tell you something that might, you know, bend a few people the wrong way if you take it the wrong way. I don't like people. Now, it doesn't mean I really don't like people. I don't like lots of people in one place at one time. I don't like crowds, and I really don't like disorganized crowds. And when I'm fishing, the last thing I want is some Yahoo casting across my line. I want some space. And with rivers, it's generally pretty easy to find that. Bigger lakes with a boat, you can usually do that as well. 
But the river just has something unique about it. I invite you to give it a shot, whether it's a small creek that you can walk across or a larger river that you can float a boat on or anything in between. Um, there's something special about fishing rivers. And it will teach you a lot about fish because you will be able to read the water. And even if you haven't read the water correctly, if you pull a fish out of there, and this is a big tip here at the end. Let's say you catch a fish. There just was an area that you thought, ah, I'll throw a line in there. You throw a line in there, catch a fish. Stop. Stop. Ask yourself, what kind of fish is this? What does it feed on? How big is it? How small is it? How did it take the bait? Did it take it aggressively? Or did it just kind of slowly pick it up? Did it, did it hammer it? Was it just a good strike? How's the water moving here? What about that spot that that line landed in is different than everything around it. Why was that fish in that spot? And then the interesting thing is, when you hit a lake and you turn on the sonar and you're looking at the structures on the bottom of the lake, you start to be able to think like a fish a little bit. And people say, well, it's a smart fish. There's no such thing as a fish are stupid. Okay, in, in relation to human beings, fish are dumb, but they behave certain ways. Okay. And because of that, you, to understand them, you have to understand their behavior and how they interact with edges and structures. And how they, you know, there's times of the year where fish just don't feed heavily. And they need a subtle presentation. There's times of the year where they're starving and they feed like ravenous beasts. So you have to understand that. And as you, as you progress with fishing moving waters and reading the water's movement... You begin to understand that better, and you actually become a better lake fisherman as well. At least I believe that's true. When I do a show on alternative fishing methods like trot lines uh, and limb lines and yo-yo fishing and jugging, we'll revisit rivers and lakes mainly, and we'll talk about how a lot of these fish today, like catfish, uh, are actually really easy to catch in large numbers in river environments um, using these alternative methods. But today we were really focused on rod and reels. I hope you guys enjoyed this. Again, we're not going to become the angling hour here at TSP. We are going to go to a different subject tomorrow. Uh, I'm highly thinking about doing a show on herbs tomorrow. Uh, edible and medicinal herbs that grow wild in North America. I've done shows like that before, but maybe going into some different plants. If you want to hear that, let me know. If you have something else you'd like to hear tomorrow, let me know in the comments section. Again, this is episode 1342, Fishing Rivers and Streams on the Survival Podcast. You're on an all-jack week, no interviews this week. Uh, so I am open tomorrow to doing something other than the herbal show. Love to hear from you. Let me know what you want to hear. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life at times you tough. Or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd You don't have to live 
can't pay Cause nobody up there cares They're living for today Yeah.